السلام علیکم ہیلو اینڈ ویلکم ٹو دا وائس آف اسلام لیونگ ہسٹری پروگرام مائی نیمز ڈاکٹر محمد اقبال اینڈ آل بی یور ہوسٹ فار دس پروگرام ایز لسنرز ول نو دا لیونگ ہسٹری ٹیم ہیو امبارکڈ آن اے سیون پارٹ سیریز آن دا ہسٹری آف منی اینڈ ٹریڈ ان دا ماڈرن ورلڈ دیر از اے کامن سینگ اسپیشلی ان دا ویسٹ دیٹ منی میکس دا ورلڈ گو راؤنڈ دا فریز بیسکلی مینس دیٹ ایوری تھنگ ان دس ورلڈ ووڈ اسٹاپ ود آؤٹ منی اینڈ ٹو سم ایکسٹینڈ دس اسٹیٹمنٹ از ٹرو Without money, you cannot afford a shelter on your head, buy the food to survive, or go from point A to point B, etc. In part one of this series, entitled Genesis Cows and Crops to Coin Trade, my fellow panelists and I explored the origins of early trade in money and the introduction of coins, metal coins. In part two, entitled The Rise of the Great Eurasian Empires, we looked at the way gold and silver took center stage in trade and conquest that shaped many of the large and influential empires. In part 3 entitled Worlds of Conquerors Prophets and Reformers we looked at the role religion played in shaping empires and trade between nations and empires in particular we looked at the interaction between the Romans and the Jewish people leading to the rise of Christianity and we also looked briefly at the rise of Islam in part 4 entitled Islamic Civilization a bridge between east and west We looked at how the Muslims during the golden age of Islam picked up new ideas from India, China and the Greeks and how they refined many of these and passed them on to Europe especially the concept of zero in mathematics. We also looked at the powerful economies of the Ottoman, Safavid and Mughal empires and finally we looked at how China became the most powerful sea and land power during the Yuan and the Ming dynasties. In today's program which is part 5 of this series and is entitled The Making of a European World we will look at the European Renaissance starting with the Spanish and Portuguese voyages of discovery that turned these countries into the first global empires we will look at how the hoarding of gold and silver and access to new lands and slaves transformed much of Europe We will also look at the formation of the largest empire in human history the British Empire and its rivalry with France Germany and Russia and we will also look at the subjugation of India and China and the rise of the United States that came to challenge Britain's hegemony in the world to explore these fascinating developments i'm joined by my panelists Amjad Hussain and Arif Ahmed again. So thank you for joining me. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikum salam. So Arif, just uh, take us through the rise and fall of empires. It's an ancient story. Uh, just uh, take us through the early developments of rise of Europe. Yes, of course, Dr. Iqbal. So just to set the background, um, in human history, empires and civilizations had risen and fallen and the European empires, which were only the last of many. In fact, the growth of what might some might call civilization came rather late in northwest europe and later still it was in what is now the united states before then the major centers of power wealth uh, the development of luxurious living cities monuments a division of labor science and technology and whatever else the attributes of civilization were to be found elsewhere early europeans did not possess anything that might be termed a superior civilization or even superior techniques on a world scale and it would be useful to remember that inventions that were there to pave the way for the europe's age of discovery the renaissance the enlightenment and the industrial revolution such as the compass printing 
and gunpowder. These were actually Chinese uh, inventions. And the development and refinement of the scientific method came from the Muslim civilization, as did so many breakthroughs in medicine, mathematics, chemistry and physics. As we discussed in our last program, the zero concept and a number system of positional notation, which were the preconditions of scientific progress, uh, Roman numerals were far too clumsy, so this concept was taken from the Arabs who borrowed them from the Indians uh, and put them into much wider use. Before the rise of the Islamic world, the major uh, Mediterranean European power um, was the Roman Empire. The establishment of Constantinople as the new capital designated Nova Rome or the New Rome by Emperor Constantine in AD 330 marked the first steps towards the division of the Roman Empire. As expected and over time, the two halves of the empire began to move apart, not only in political but also in cultural terms. The eastern part was not only stabilized but it flourished under the Byzantine monarchy and it was not till the coming of the Muslims in the 7th century that it really lost great tracts of territory. However, the Western Roman Empire faced fierce resistance from Germanic tribes. The victory of the Germanic tribes in the Battle of the Teutonburg Forest in AD 9 prevented annexation by the Roman Empire of the area east of the Rhine, that was called Germania by Julius Caesar. Um, tell us a little bit about the Goths and the battles uh, that took place, uh, Arif. So the Goths, who were the Germanic people, they played a major role um, in the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the emergence of medieval Europe. Um, and as I said, they were called Goths, although they were more ancient and uh, related tribes described by the Romans. Uh, having maintained their independence from the Romans for many centuries, Gothlands were invaded by the fearsome Hunts around 375 CE, and the Goths were driven west to seek shelter in the Roman Empire. In the aftermath of the Hunnic onslaught, two major groups of the Goths would eventually emerge. One was the Visigoths, the Goths of the West, and the Ostrogoths, the Goths of the East. So while the Ostrogoths came under the control of the Huns, the Visigoths, under the leadership of Alaric I, continued to make raids on the Roman Empire. In 401 and 402 CE, uh, Alaric made two attempts at invading Italy, but he was defeated. However, in 410, he sacked the city of Rome, and although the city's riches were plundered, the civilian inhabitants of the city were treated humanely, and only a few buildings were burnt. The Visigoths then went on to establish an independent Visigothic kingdom in Spain at Toledo, Meanwhile, the Ostrogoths gained their independence from the Huns and under their king Theodoric the Great, they established an Ostrogothic kingdom in Italy. Sorry, if carry on please with the rise of Charlemagne then. Yes, so after the decline of the Roman Empire, most of Western Europe was once again reunited by the famous uh, Frank king Charlemagne, who was also known as Charles the Great. And he reigned from 768 to 814 uh, of the Christian era. He was given the title Imperator Romanorum, which means Emperor of the Romans, by Pope Leo III, and is regarded by many as the father of Europe. Upon uh, his death in 814, the empire was divided, and in 962, Otto I became the first Holy Roman Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, which is the medieval German state. Meanwhile, the Visigoths' uh, kingdom, 
in the Iberian Peninsula began to suffer from internal troubles uh, at the end of the 7th century. Their kingdom fell and was progressively conquered by the Umayyad Caliphate from 711 after the defeat of their last king, Roderick, at the Battle of Guadalete. So whilst the Western Roman Empire was rebuilding itself uh, after many years of turmoil, Byzantine, or the Eastern Roman Empire, was also facing major challenges from Muslim Turks. Following the loss of much of Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, to the Seljuk Turks initially in 1095 CE, the Byzantine Emperor made a plea to Pope Urban II in the West to help defend the Eastern Christian Church and drive the Turks out, and also to retake the holy lands around Jerusalem. The Pope duly instructed European Christians to respond positively, and so began the Crusades of the Holy War against the Muslims to retake Jerusalem and the Holy Land. So Amjad, take us through this sort of period. The Pope's call for the Crusades also triggered a great deal of interest and renewed religious fever among the Christians of the Iberian Peninsula, thus modern-day Spain, to retake lands from the Muslims, a process historians called Reconquista. In contrast to the Crusades, this was to be much more local or regional affair with very little involvement uh, of the rest of Europe. The first major Muslim city to fall to in the Iberian Peninsula to Catholic power was Toledo, and that happened in uh, 1085 by 1212 uh, of the Common Era, and after the Battle of Las Vesas de Tolosa, most of Alundalus fell under the control of the Catholic kingdoms, the only exception being the Nasserid dynasty, uh, the Emirate of uh, Granada. Uh, King Ferdinand II of Argon and his wife, Queen Isabella I of Castile, defeated the last Muslim king of Granada in uh, 1492 after a 10-year war to bring to an end all of the Muslim presence in the Iberian Peninsula. From the Muslim point of view, this was a very sad period. In the years that followed the Reconquista, Muslims and Jews were either forced to convert to Christianity or forcibly expelled from the country. As for the Crusades, after some initial successes, they were brought to a halt with Muslims retaining control of the Holy Lands and the Ottoman Turks taking full control of Constantinople. In sharp contrast to the taking of Jerusalem by the Christian crusaders and the slaughter of Muslims or the forced expulsion of Muslims during the Spanish Reconquista, both Saladin, who took Jerusalem, and Sultan Muhammad II, the conqueror who took Constantinople, they showed immense tolerance and mercy to the Christian population. Saladin reconquered Jerusalem in 1187 CE, and Muhammad II conquered Constantinople in 1453, very important dates for both Muslims and uh, Christians. Although the Christian powers on the Iberian Peninsula had much to celebrate with having full control of the area, they faced a major problem in relation to their trade and future prosperity. With the Ottomans taking control of Constantinople, and control of the land and sea routes to Asia, European Christian nations needed to find alternative sea routes urgently as the Silk Roads had virtually now been uh, cut off. And this proved to be a, a blessing for them, even though it was a challenge initially. Amjad, take us through. The Portuguese sailors began exploring the coast of Africa and the Atlantic archipelago from 1418 onwards. Uh, and in uh, 1488, Bartolomeu Dias rounded the Cape of Good Hope 
and the southern tip of Africa and ushered in what the Europeans called the Age of Discovery. Then in 1498, to sell west across the Atlantic to find new route, sea route basically, to Asia uh, for Castile. Uh, rather than reaching India, Columbus obviously stumbled upon what we now call the Americas, um, though he still believed he had reached India. Uh, and, you know, we called the Native Americans Indians for, you know, some colloquial reasons. The race, however, was set between Portugal and Spain, was now on the, to earn the spoils of what the two, you know, what historians call discoveries. So the Portuguese really um, sort of started their initial explorations and they, they developed a quite a big empire, Ari, if you want to take us through that period. Absolutely. So the Portuguese uh, traders uh, of the 16th century, they established Europe's trading links with Africa, India, uh, the Malay archipelago, China and Japan, and they dominated the African trade in gold and slaves. Um, within a short period, the Portuguese Empire became one of the first and largest transcontinental empires and amongst the most powerful nations in the world. Uh, the economy of Portugal uh, was powered by trade and raw material-related activities within its vast colonial possessions, mainly in Asia, where there were spices, silks, dyes, porcelain and gems, Africa, where there was ivory, timber, oil, diamonds and slaves, and South America, where there were sugarcane, dyes, woods, and gold. Um, as mentioned before, following the voyage of Christopher Columbus in 1492, and the first major settlement in the New World in 1493, Portugal and Castile, with the arbitration of the Pope, they divided the world by the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494. And this gave Portugal, Africa, and Asia, um, and the Western Hemisphere went to Spain. So the Spanish Empire, like the Portuguese Empire, was also a colonial empire governed by Spain and its predecessor states, Aragon and Castile, between 1492 to 1970-76. Uh, it was one of the largest empires in history, and it was in conjunction with the Portuguese the first to achieve a global scale, controlling vast portions of the, America, of the Americas, the archipelago of the Philippines, various islands in the Pacific and territories in Western Europe and Asia. And it was one of the world's most powerful empires of the early modern period, becoming known as the empire on which the sun never sets. And it reached its maximum extent in the 18th century. So when King Philip II of Spain seized the Portuguese crown in 1580, there began a 60-year union between Spain and Portugal known as the Iberian Union. And as the King of Spain was also the King of Portugal, Portuguese colonies became the subject of attacks by rival European powers hostile to Spain, which were namely the Dutch Republic, England and France. The Spanish Empire, of course, was massive and their growth came from the minerals and silver and gold that was taken from South America with uh, conquest of the Aztecs, the Incas and the Mayans uh, as well. 
Uh, again, the age of uh, discovery for Europe proved to be quite lucrative uh, in terms of economic benefits. Indeed, Dr. Iqbal, the European age of discovery and the Renaissance, as we call it, uh, followed change Europe and the world in quite different ways. Whilst traders and priests made a great success of the spread of Roman Catholicism in new lands, back in Europe, the papacy was increasingly under pressure to hand over more power to the monarchs of various nations and national churches. The Reformation movement, led by people like Martin Luther and others, rejected the authority of the Catholic Church. These ideas proved attractive to many rulers who embraced them. At the start of the 16th century, for instance, the Spain's monarch Charles V uh, became the most powerful ruler of Europe, making him the greatest Christian ruler since Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor. In 1519, Charles not only inherited the Spanish Empire from his maternal grandparents, Ferdinand and Isabella, as the elected Roman, Holy Roman Emperor, he now ruled the Habsburg Empire lands of Austria, southern Germany and the Netherlands. Italian city-states had been incorporated into the Spanish Empire and the papal attempts to oppose Charles V proved to be a disaster for the papacy. Even though Charles V divided his empire on his death, his son Philip II of Spain retained much of Italy. Deeply devout, Philip II saw himself as the defender of Catholic Europe against the Ottoman Empire and the Protestant uh, Reformation. The 17 provinces that are now today the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg rebelled against the Spanish Habsburg rule and started what became to be known as the 18-year war that lasted from 1568 to 1648. The Dutch Republic was, of course, finally recognised by the Spanish. Um, but during the 80-year war, Spain was extremely annoyed with Britain for its support of Protestant rebels in Europe and also for a number of other matters in 1588, Philip II of Spain sent the Spanish Armada to invade Protestant England with the strategic aim of overthrowing Elizabeth I and re-establishing Catholicism there. This was one of the biggest armadas ever assembled and the invincible uh, armada, as it was known, was defeated by a much smaller but agile English naval force led by Sir Francis Drake and Lord Charles Howard, we learnt a lot about that in our history lessons, didn't we, in the young days? Yeah, we all did. We all been taught that. <laughs> that was a great victory against the Spanish, absolutely, yeah. And but, the weather played its part as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Weather, but it was yeah. one of the great sea battles, sea battles of all yeah. time, yeah. Yeah, so Arif, uh, the, the Spanish Empire was quite vast, uh, wasn't it? So absolutely. So the Spanish Empire left a huge linguistic, religious, political, cultural uh, and urban architectural legacy in the Western Hemisphere. With over 470 million native speakers today, Spanish is actually the second most spoken native language in the world. Um, an important cultural legacy of the Spanish Empire overseas is Roman Catholicism, which remains the main religious faith in Spanish America and the Philippines. Christian evangelization of indigenous people was a key responsibility of the crown uh, and a justification for its imperial expansion. Uh, the overseas lands claimed by Spain in the New World proved to be a source of mineral wealth, particularly silver, uh, which became the economic lifeblood of the crown. And in the 1520s, the large-scale extraction of silver from the de rich deposits um, of Mexico's Guantanjo uh, began, but it was not until the opening of the silver mines in Mexico's uh, Zacatillas and Peru's Potosi in 1546 that large shipments of silver became the fabled source of wealth. 
This led to the silver standard, which became which came into existence uh, in conjunction with the Spanish pieces of eight. These silver dollar coins played uh, the role of an international trading currency for nearly 400 years, and the silver standard became the monetary system in which the standard economic unit of account is a fixed weight of silver. During the 16th century, Spain held the equivalent of 1.5 trillion US dollars, that's in 1990 terms, in gold and silver received from New Spain, accounting for one-fifth of Spain's budget. According to some estimates, the world's stock of precious metal was doubled or even tripled by silver from the Americas. The 16th and 17th centuries are sometimes called the Golden Age of uh, Spain. Uh, And this Golden Age was largely associated with the immense amount of gold and silver that was shipped over to Europe from the colonies in the Americas, South America, etc. in particular. But one of the problems it created was that Portugal and Spain didn't develop their inherent industries. They just relied on uh, this vast sum of uh, gold and silver and thus the weakness that they suffered later on. Another uh, important development uh, that helped Spain was uh, the rapid rise of the money lenders or the banking sector Uh, and the charging of uh, interest on loans. And this is something that uh, was in conflict with Christian teachings. Uh, um, Prior to the rise of Christianity across Europe, both the Romans and the Greeks charged interest throughout their empires, even though Aristotle was against it, describing Ushri as the birth of money from money and uh, claimed it as unnatural because money was sterile and should not breed. Uh, during the Spanish Reconquista, Jews and Muslims fled persecution, and while Muslims fled to North Africa, many Jews migrated to northern Italy and the region of Lombardy. Although Jews could not hold land in Italy, they were free to trade crops in their vast agricultural areas. Uh, their trading had one major advantage compared to the locals. Uh, Christians were strictly forbidden uh, the sin of Ushiri, defined as lending at interest. The Jewish newcomers, on the other hand, could lend to farmers against crops in the field. A high-risk loan had been considered uh, Ushri's rates by the church, but the Jews were not subject to the church uh, dictates. According to the Old Testament, although Jews are forbidden to charge interest upon loans made to other Jews, in accordance with the Old Testament, especially the poor, uh, but they could charge interest on transactions uh, with non-Jews. For instance, it's quoted in Deuteronomy, that's 23.19, Thou shalt not lend upon uh, interest to thy brother, Interest of money, interest of uh, viticles, interest of anything that is lent upon the interest. And another verse in the Deuteronomy 20 says, for instance, Unto foreigner thou mayest lend upon interest, but upon thy brother thou shalt not lend upon interest. Within Christianity, the taking of interest was forbidden, and this was incorporated into law in 1314 AD with a few loopholes, obviously. The highly acclaimed 13th century theologian Thomas Aquinas set out a Christian doctrine to ban all forms of ushery. In Summa Theologica, for instance, Aquinas argues that money's natural end or purpose was exchange, using money to make money rather than to facilitate the exchange of goods and services, therefore violated natural law. As uh, trade across Europe started expanding rapidly and the largely Jewish money lenders became more and more influential, groups of Italian Christians from Lombardy and elsewhere devised ways to get round the ban on Christian usury. 
One of these was the Contractum Trinitius, Trinius rather, which involved a set of three separate contracts to secure an interest-based loan, an investment, a sale of profit, and an insurance contract, three separate things. Each of these contracts were permissible under canon law, but together replicated the effect of an interest-bearing loan. So how did it work, Arif? Yes, so this loophole, the way that this procedure worked was as follows. Um, The lender would invest a sum equal to the amount of financing required by the borrower for one year. The lender would then purchase insurance for the investment from the borrower and finally sell to the borrower the right to any profit made over a prearranged percentage of the investment. Uh, This system replicated the effects of a loan with any interest rate agreed between the two yet provided protection to the lender against default, while the borrower remained under the protection of the law when it came to the collection of money by threats or by force. As a result of this shift in Christian practice, Jews lost their privileged position as money lenders, and Christian merchants who lent money with interest gained prominence. After the first bank was set up in Venice in 1157, the affluent cities of Florence and Genoa also established their own banks. The most powerful banking families came from Florence, including Ayacololi, Mosi, Bardi and Perusia families, which established banks in many parts of Europe. The most famous Italian bank was the Medisa Bank, established by Giovanni Medici in 1397. Eventually, kings, politicians and business people embraced usury wholesale and the church looked the other way. This is probably a good place to stop um, and then we'll carry on in the second part. But it's interesting to see now how everything was geared up for Europe now to dominate the world. They had a money lending banking system in place. They had transportation with massive ships and uh, trade developing all over the world and conquests and colonies all over the world with massive amounts of gold, silver and other coins as well. So uh, let's have a break and then we'll carry on. I uh, would like to urge our listeners to give us feedback on our Twitter hashtag at VI Living History. And also please visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk. And under the programs, you'll see the Living History SoundCloud programs, which you can listen to at any time. We'll be back with you shortly. So welcome back to part two of the, this program, which is about the um, the rise of Europe and the European world and the conquests of Europe. So in the first part, we looked at how um, trade developed, the voyages of discovery and the development of banking and development of colonies, etc. So when, um, when the European traders and adventures uh, eventually broke through into the Indian Ocean at the close of the 15th century, the great prize drawing them forward was the spices of Southeast Asia. Here was untold wealth to be tapped, a region where cultural influences from China and India intermingled and where political and cultural complexities could be greatly exploited. This was one of the world's main crossroads where loyalties were divided between three of the world's main religions, Buddhism, Hinduism and Islam. Initially, the Portuguese and Spanish traders, supported fully by their respective monarchs back in Europe, built fortified trading stations and chains and used their powerful naval vessels to protect them. 
As long as their trade was safe, they did not interfere with the native political matters. However, with the desire to expand their trade, they started taking sides in rivalries and creating divisions in order to get favorable terms for expansion. With the arrival of Dutch, French and British outposts, the policy of divide and rule became a common theme. The Dutch in particular began a systematic conquest of Portuguese settlements capturing Malacca in 1641, before turning on the British also. Though European activities encroached on the outlying islands, they had little impact on the mainland monarchies of China and India. The scientific breakthroughs in Europe and the Industrial Revolution began to transform European powers. There was now a great drive for the access to raw materials as demand for manufactured or finished goods from Europe increased. The Dutch and the British took innovation to a new height by setting up highly organized and efficient joint stock companies to negotiate, administer, trade and defend business on behalf of the Crown. The most formidable, at least to begin with, was the Dutch East India Company, formally incorporated in 1602. Within the first two decades of the 17th century, the Dutch East India Company was the wealthiest commercial operation in the world, with 50,000 employees worldwide and a private fleet of 200 ships. It specialized in the spice trade and gave its shareholders 40% annual dividend. The English East India Company, incorporated in 1600, was a rather smaller concern and usually proved unable to resist Dutch pressure in the region. Following the success in the East, the Dutch also set up the Dutch West India Company, which challenged the Portuguese in Brazil and the Caribbean. So this was a big development and change, Amjad, in terms of setting up these joint stock companies. Indeed, yeah, the European hegemony on the continent and territorial expansion overseas continued throughout the 17th and 18th centuries and led to various clashes between the various European powers. Uh, one of the most uh, contentious uh, region uh, was North America and uh, would one day lead to the formation of the United States of America as one of the most powerful nations to exist on the planet. Initially, Spain claimed all of North America during the Age of Discovery, but they failed to translate their claim into occupation. Meanwhile, the French had established an empire in the northern part of the Americas, and, and they also taken some islands in the Caribbean. The English had also established colonies on the eastern seaboard of North America, and in the northern part of the Americas, they also colonized some Caribbean islands. In the 18th century, the Spanish crown realized that its territorial claims needed to be defended, particularly in the wake of its visible weakness during the Seven Years' War, when Britain captured the important Spanish port of Havana and Manila. Great Britain was rapidly expanding into the areas that Spain claimed as its territory in the Pacific and the Caribbean. There was this massive expansion, Arif, wasn't there? But uh, they lacked one thing, and that was manpower to take all these... Uh, you know, work in these colonies, etc., but just take us through that phase. Yes, absolutely. So in, in most cases, the indigenous peoples from those lands, they had been killed on the battlefield or they had died from diseases brought over from Europe. Um, the Europeans, unsurprisingly, they saw themselves as masters of the New World, uh, but they were unsuited to climate and they suffered uh, tropical diseases in these countries. Uh, however, the Africans, they were excellent workers 
uh, and they often had experience of agriculture and keeping cattle. They were used to working in a tropical climate and they were resistant to tropical diseases and they could be worked hard on plantations or in mines. Um, the large-scale and profitable management of sugar, tobacco and cotton plantations would not have been possible without the transatlantic slave trade. Now, the exact numbers of Africans shipped overseas during the slave trade is hotly debated. Estimates range from between 10 million to 28 million. What is undisputed, however, is the degree of savage cruelty endured by men, women and children. And up to 20% of those chained in the holds of the slave ships died before they even reached their destination. Uh, participation in the transatlantic slave trade stretched across Europe, beginning with the Portuguese and Spanish and closely followed by the Dutch, French and English. The enslavement of Africans by the English reached proportions that were not known before and England was home to the most famous and important trading company, the Royal Africa Company, which was set up in 1672. Individuals from the country's ruling classes, from the monarchy to MPs, politicians and merchants, who went on to found some of England's economic monuments, such as the Bank of England, they themselves were involved in the enslavement of Africans for great profit. The trading um, in enslaved Africans certainly fueled the economic development of Europe on a massive scale. Although it was outlawed by the United States and Britain in 1807, the slave trade actually continued until the 1860s. Now, whilst the European powers are engaged in disastrous wars vying for power across the continent and abroad, many of Europe's brightest minds were quietly engaged in a revolution of their own, the scientific revolution. Galileo's discoveries at the end of the 16th century led the way to Kepler's and Newton's physics and astronomy in the 17th century. These historic breakthroughs were accompanied by a surge in experimentation and an intense interest in engineering. In 1660, Britain's greatest minds launched the Royal Society of London for improving natural knowledge. And 1666, King Louis XIV uh, of France launched the French Academy of Sciences, creating important new institutions to promote the new sciences. In fact, King Louis um, took the lead in making France uh, a superpower in terms of scientific leadership and development and really turning France uh, into a great uh, power and for this reason was given the title of Louis the, the Great. So this obviously started the great competition between the French and the British. Amjad, just take us through that. Indeed, the, uh, the competition between the French and, uh, and Great Britain was intense because they were the emerging European superpowers and they vied each other for global supremacy. The outbreak of hostilities between the two lasted from 1754 uh, with the war in North American colonies in uh, 1754 all the way to 1815. European states, um, American settlers, Native American chiefs and Indian kings and princes all fought uh, subsidized uh, and dependent allies uh, of uh, these two powers. After decades of warring with France, Britain succeeded in taking control of the French colony of Canada in 1763, for instance, as well as several Caribbean territories. However, the French managed to get revenge against the British by supporting rebellion uh, of North American col colonies against the British in 1775. George, General George Washington led the rebels against the British forces 
finally winning independence in 1783. Uh, to this day, the Statue of Liberty from the French is regarded as a great, uh, <laughs> great uh, monument. Uh, indeed. Yeah, the, the, the British and the French also contested India during the dying days of the Mughal Empire. British interests um, had been delegated to the British East India Company and it had established factories in India as early as 1612 during the reign of the great Mughal ruler Jange. Uh, King James I had personally written to him as a gesture of friendship and Jange and other Mughals, of course, um, you know, supported the uh, early programs uh, of the East India uh, Company. Uh, but then, of course, you know, you had the later battles uh, uh, of Plassey and all those where the East India Company virtually just took over the uh, uh, whole of India. And then there was uh, another uh, intellectual development across Europe while all these wars and colonies were uh, you know, fought over. During the Enlightenment period, you had great thinkers and f- like the philosopher Rousseau uh, writing The Social Contract. And many other figures of the European Enlightenment really contributed to the rise of revolution, both the American Revolution in 1775 and uh, also the French Revolution of 1789 as well. But of course, after the French Revolution, um, we had the rise of one of the greatest dictators and really uh, conquerors uh, of modern time, Napoleon uh, Bonaparte. Between 1799 and 1815, Napoleon blazed across Europe as a latter-day Julius Caesar and uh, creating a massive French empire. Though he was finally defeated in exile, the legacy left behind was truly amazing. So quite quite a rivalry, as I said, between the British and the French. Arif, um, uh, again, take us through additional developments across Europe. Yes, so by 1800, uh, Italy was uh, reconquered and French power extended over Germany. In 1805, Russia and Austria were defeated at Austerlitz, and in 1806, Prussia humiliated at Jena. By 1807, Napoleon was at the borders of Russia, and Britain remained the only nation that had not been defeated by Napoleon. It was actually Britain's good fortune that the French Revolution had shattered the French navy, and so Napoleon's plans for the invasion of Great Britain were put on hold. Britain was the preeminent naval power and the French navy was no match for it. Although uh, the British and the Spanish fleets had defeated the French in 1805 at the Battle of Trafalgar, Britain was unable to defeat Napoleon on land. The two major European powers then resorted to trade warfare. Uh, This meant that Britain blockaded the French ports and the French resorted to the banning of trade with Britain. In 1810, the Tsar of Russia refused to exclude British trade and this resulted in Napoleon launching the invasion of Russia in June 1812. This was actually a fatal miscalculation um, on Napoleon's part. After some early success, Napoleon's Russia campaign got bogged down. Faced with this and the widespread unrest against French rule in Spain and much of northern Europe, Napoleon decided to withdraw from Russia. Uh, The retreat from Moscow during the winter months proved to be a disaster, Ravaged by cold, hunger and disease and harried by Russians, only 40,000 troops survived from the initial 450,000 that had been set out for the campaign. By October 1813, the French army was overwhelmed and a defeated Napoleon was sent into exile. Although he actually managed to escape in 1815 and regroup his army, he was once again defeated at Waterloo 
and this time he was exiled to the island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic, where he died in 1821. So as a result, Great Britain remained the supreme power in Europe uh, and a highly successful trading nation across much of the world. Even um, though the European powers had become the masters of the seas with their huge navies and well-equipped military around 1700, global trade was still divided between a number of powerful nations, including non-European. Asia was still dominated by the great land powers, including the Qing dynasty in China, the Mughal Empire in India, the Safavid Empire in Persia, and the Ottoman Empire in West Asia. Europe and the New World was now divided among the four European powers, Portugal, Spain, Britain, and France. Um, So I'm just taking us through the next developments because eventually China and uh, India succumbed, so we're into the 18th century. Well, by the 18th century, China was still the largest economy in the world, followed by India with Europe as a secondary player. Adam Smith saw China as an exemplar of market-based development and observed in 1776 that China is a much richer country than any part of Europe. This indeed was the case, uh, as it was not until 1850 that London was able to displace um, Beijing as the world's largest city. During much of China's history, and especially during the Qin dynasty, or the Qing dynasty, it was large and self-sufficient economy. Although the Qing economy was intimately tied to foreign trade, the country had little need to import goods or raw materials from other countries, including the increasingly important Europeans. Demand in Europe for China's goods such as silk, tea and ceramics was massive, and this could only be met if European companies funneled their limited supplies of silver into China, which was the main uh, payment of system at that time. So in the late 1700s, the government of Britain and France became deeply concerned about the imbalance of trade and the drain on of silver. For instance, in 1793, the British East India Company, with the support of the British government, sent a delegation to China under Lord George McCartney in order to open free trade and put relations on basis of equality. Uh, The imperial court viewed trade as a secondary interest, whereas the British saw maritime trade as the key to their economy. Uh, the Quinlong Emperor told McCartney, the kings of the myriad nations come by land and sea with all sorts of precious things, and consequently there is nothing we lack ourselves. <laughs> it just showed the, the power and uh, resources they had at that say China. With uh, Britain losing its colonies in the Americas in the 18th century, the supply of silver was um, significantly reduced. The British realized they could reduce their trade deficit with Chinese by counter-trading in narcotic opium. And as such, efforts were made to produce more opium in the Indian colonies. Limited British sales of Indian opium began in 1781, with exports to China increasing as the East India Company solidified its control over India. An addiction crisis followed, and whilst the Qing tried to uh, ban outlawing the smoking of opium, British traders worked with black marketeers to bypass laws. The influx of narcotics reversed the Chinese trade surplus, drained the economy of silver, and increased the numbers of opium addicts inside the country. Outcomes that seriously worried Chinese officials. Now, in our previous series on China, we've covered this period as well, the period of humiliation of China with the opium wars, the first opium war of 1839 to 1842, where the Europeans devastated China, followed by the second opium war, where 
um, they were further humiliated and as I mentioned, you know, the social structure and the fabric of Chinese society was devastated uh, due to uh, addiction and uh, China suffered terribly, uh, badly. China, um, a proud nation and a civilization with uh, an astounding 37% of the world's population in 1820 and a 33% share of global GDP found itself humbled by countries less than a tenth of its size. While China avoided direct colonization during the 19th century, it could not avoid social and political influence, military defeat, or European imperial encroachments on its uh, sovereignty. So this is basically how um, you know India and China really became uh, subjugated. Um, Amjad, the, if you could uh, then to take us to the next major development across Europe, and that is rise of um, Germany, I suppose, uh, German power in the competition between the British and the Germans. Even though the idea of a strong, a strong nation-state and a national idea came from a German thinker called Hegel, a German reunification took quite a bit of time to materialise. Because the nation-state was set during the Westphalia Agreement where uh, the Europeans agreed that nation-states could be developed and they could develop, but Germany still lagged behind that. But sorry, uh, carry indeed, on. That's indeed, where the yeah. Westphalian uh, agreement is always referred to, but go on. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. This is somewhat of a surprise given that uh, the history of the German people or a nation was uh, one of the oldest and went way back to Roman times and beyond. Basically, Holy Roman Empire was uh, dissolved by Napoleon and from its remains was the, uh, to rise the modern state of Germany. Uh, following the defeat of Napoleon, a pressure for German reunification grew. Scholars, bureaucrats, students, journalists and businessmen called for United Germany that would bring with it uniform law, single currency and replace the petty German states with democracy. The Industrial Revolution modernized the German economy, led to the rapid growth of cities and the emergence of socialist movement in Germany. Prussia with its capital Berlin grew in power, German universities became world-class centres for science and humanities, while music and art flourished. The unification of Germany, excluding, of course, Austria and the German-speaking areas of Switzerland, was achieved under the leadership of Chancellor Otto von Bismarck with formation uh, of the German Empire in 1871. Germany joined the other powers in colonial expansion in Africa and the Pacific. Despite the opposition of conservative forces, German Unification was achieved after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 under the masterful diplomatic and strategic manoeuvres of Prussian aristocrat Otto von Bismarck in 1871. Sensing the power of nationalism, Bismarck achieved a united Germany without Austria and German-speaking areas of Switzerland. Uh, this was quite an achievement, uh, If uh, He had the rightful title of the Iron Chancellor and Bismarck's name is held in the highest regard by Germans in their history. Absolutely. So um, although the Iron Chancellor Bismarck had always argued that the acquisition uh, of overseas colonies was impractical and the burden of administration and maintenance would outweigh the benefits, he was persuaded otherwise and a number of colonies were established. Um, in 1885, Bismarck initiated the Berlin Conference, which was a formal meeting of the European colonial powers who sought to established uh, international guidelines for the acquisition of African territory. Um, and this was the formalization of the scramble for Africa and the new imperialism, um, as it became known. So whilst the latecomer really in empire building and uh, as a superpower, but the steps Germany took to 
really become a superpower, just quite amazing. Um, side by side, uh, during the European Enlightenment, some of the biggest figures in science, in arts, um, in any field, really, were some of the big names. Uh, um, for example, you know, um, you've got people in music like uh, Schubert and um, Beethoven. Beethoven in philosophy, Immanuel Kant. You've got uh, uh, Nietzsche in terms of philosophy, Max Weber, even Karl Marx, you know, from uh, German lands as well. And German universities became some of the best universities, churning out some of the um, great um, graduates uh, as well. And of course, there was innovation at the heart of German uh, industry uh, uh, as well. Uh, Germany became the heart of innovation and the industrial boom producing half of the world's trade in electrical goods and 80% of the world's dye stuffs. The motor car was pioneered in Germany by the engineers uh, Gottlieb Daimler and Karl Benz. And by 1900, Germany was the dominant power on the European continent and its rapidly expanding industry had surpassed Britain while challenging it as a naval uh, arms race as well. So Great Britain was still a dominant power in the world, uh, but uh, two new non-European powers were also beginning to emerge that would pose a significant challenge, uh, and these were the United States and Japan uh, who were making major progress. Arif, if you could uh, take through their uh, development, and maybe with Amjid we can share later as well, because these are big developments outside Europe. Absolutely. So the United States became uh, independent in 1783, uh, but at that time most uh, Americans lived on the eastern seaboard. Uh, these were the former colonies which had been established by the British. Over the next 100 years, there was a vast movement of the population westwards uh, into new lands which were confiscated from the Native Americans or through treaties. Uh, and it was a century of gold rushes and Indian wars and establishments of uh, new towns. So, for example, on August the 12th, 1833, uh, the great city, or the, then it was the town of Chicago, which was located on the shores of Lake Michigan, was incorporated with a population of 350 people. Uh, Chicago was granted a city charter uh, on March the 4th, 1837, and by 1840, the boomtown had a population of over 4,000, which rapidly increased to a million by 1890. So you can see the growth um, of those towns and cities and how quickly it actually happened. Absolutely amazing development, uh, you know. Yeah, so by basically 1900, the USA had taken full advantage of the Industrial Revolution and transformed its economy, underpinning America's economic growth were the country's massive natural reserves, which included coal, iron ore, oil and precious metals. By 1880, USA produced less steel than Britain, for instance, but by 1900, it was producing more uh, combined total of uh, Britain and Germany, uh, this nearest rivals. But the 20th century uh, dawned, the USA was well on its way to becoming a major economic power. Yeah, the uh, American founding fathers launched their new nation on the basis that uh, Everyone had a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Arif, um, uh, I mean, these were quite bold aims, weren't they, really, by people like Thomas Jefferson? Yes, and and it's quite ironic because uh, many of the the individuals, including the president, Thomas Jefferson, actually owned slaves. Um, The issue of slavery was becoming increasingly controversial, and it fueled political and constitutional battles, which were resolved by compromises. Slavery was uh, eventually abolished in all northern states 
of the Mason-Dixon line by 1804, but the South continued the institution mostly for the production of cotton. Uh, it was when Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1860 as president on a platform of halting the expansion of slavery that seven southern slave states rebelled and created the foundation of the Confederacy and started the American Civil War in 1861. This actually led to the death of 620,000 men, which was more than the casualties of all American wars combined, and the defeat of the Confederates in 1865 led to the eventual abolition of slavery. However, um, when the white Confederates regained their power in the South in 1877, uh, they passed Jim Crow to maintain white supremacy uh, and still led to the persecution of African Americans. So by the 19th century, Britain could truly claim to have been the first truly hegemonic power in the world. Between 1890 and the British fleet, for example, was so powerful that it could have sunk all the rest of the world's navies. Naval power was the basis of Britain's enormous overseas empire and caused great envy among her rivals. Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, was heard loud and clear by all. During this period, international trade also became much easier and most of the major countries came to adopt the gold standard, moving on from the silver standard of the Spanish, uh, resulting in long-term stability in exchange rates and prices. Great Britain had adopted the gold standard as far back as 1821, as I said, replacing the silver standard used by the Portuguese and the Spanish. The core measurement became the British pound, fixed at 113 grams of gold, or 7.23 grams of gold. The result was a long-term stability in exchange rates and prices. Towards the end of the 19th century, the world economy was totally dominated by Europe, including Russia, of course, as a European power, and the North America, which was really a springboard for Europeans. The wealthiest and the technically the most advanced areas of the world were run by Europeans. With the USA having European origins, it was indeed a European world. The steamships and railways had revolutionized commerce, greatly helped by the opening of Suez Canal and the Panama Canal in South America. Suez opened in 1869 and uh, along with the Panama Canal represented one of the most significant maritime shortcuts ever built. The development of effective refrigeration by the 1880s allowed meat, fruit and dairy produce to be sent across vast distances. Between 1880 and 1913, the value of the world's imports and exports increased almost sixfold from 7 billion to 40 billion. The growth of world trade and investment benefited the developed economies of Europe and North America substantially. Their share of world income in 1860 was 44%. By 1913, it was 60.4%. Japan was the only other major economy to see improvements, having taken steps to industrialize in the 1890s. Uh, thank you, Amjad and Ari, for your contribution. Hope listeners have found this program informative uh, um, and uh, enjoyable to listen to. Um, do please give us your feedback on this program and our other programs. Our Twitter hashtag is at VI Living History. Also visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk and um, under the program section you'll see uh, around 50 programs or so. Uh, well, with these programs we'll get to 50, but there's 40 plus uh, already on there on a variety of topics. So until next time, assalamu alaikum.